AJ, come on up here. So AJ and I have been friends for a really long time. He and his wife Elena attended Trinity back in the day. Um, Our building had grown, I think, since the last time he'd been in this space. AJ is an author, a pastor. He's written on spiritual formation. He's an Enneagram expert, so don't ask him about that. He he doesn't, if you write a book on the Enneagram, you're an Enneagram expert. That's just my opinion. Um, He has so many gifts. He leads an Anglican church in Mount Pleasant. Our church and his church are going to partner together in this Holy Land trip that we're taking in the fall. But more important than all of that, how wicked smart he is, what a great guy he is, what a great pastor, I am thankful to introduce you to him because he's my friend. And I love him, and I'm thankful we both drive black Jeeps. Um, We're just like brothers in this whole thing. So, AJ, thanks for sharing with us today. I love you, bud. That was sweet. That That was was, was was a good hug. We'll do that again. I promise I won't talk about the Enneagram. So if you're like, oh no, did I, is this Enneagram Sunday? It's not Enneagram Sunday. Um, <laughs> hey everybody, it's such a joy to be here. Um, Trinity holds a really special place in my, in my story. Um, 13 years ago, I sat right around there on a sabbatical season. And um, my wife and I just moved here from LA and I was in the center of really deconstructing my faith. And, and some of you are, are there now. Welcome. Some of you have been there. Others, if not all of us, will at some place be there. And the Holy Spirit used Chris and Marty and Brad and Gillian and others in this community to embrace us and to love us and to help us reconstruct. And so let me just, if nothing else today, um, serve as an encouragement that if that's, if that's where you are, then that's where you are. And that there is hope, and that Jesus is real, and that faith is possible. So it's a joy to be here, and we're going to jump into our text, and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to move through the text that the Word would become God's Word for us as the Spirit blows like wind through it and attaches it to our hearts in ways that open us up to new revelation and new understanding of what the Spirit might uniquely want to do in you and in me in this place. And so if you would, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in a few verses here in the Sermon on the Mount and um, unpack this for the next few minutes. And it is full of fireworks. So Holy Spirit, would you come and move in our hearts in a way that we allow you, we permit you, we're grateful to even utter that sentence that you give us agency to close our hearts down or to open them. And so we just open them. I pray collectively as a body of Jesus that we would open ourselves up to you in a way that moves us and revives our hearts where we're bored or stuck or just caught in a kind of rhythm that's not helpful. So God, may we find a way in a breakthrough this morning to connect with your heart this day. Move through your your passage of scripture this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here we go, chapter 5, 21. It'll be on the screen, I believe, if you don't have the scriptures with you. You have heard it said, hang on to that phrase, that it, in ancient times you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, hang on to that, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the fire of hell. Jesus is not messing around. Verse 23, so when you are offering a gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. 
And your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, hang on to that, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, ouch, and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of the members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, hang on to that, whoever divorces his wife and let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said, hang on there, that it was said in the ancient times that you shall not swear falsely, but to carry out your vows that you've made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. The word of the Lord. It's like, thanks be to God, right? It's one of those passages. Here we go. What's being controversial here, this is a controversial sermon. It's easy for us, distance by culture, by continents, by time, to look back into this and to be like, what cool, interesting words from a guru, a teacher, a rabbi, or whatever I can take or leave. Is there something else to this? What would make this sermon so controversial? And I want to I suggest to you that the controversy over the Sermon on the Mount isn't just over what is being said. It's over who's saying it. And we don't understand that so distanced often when we rush through these texts as Americans, as people across the continent and way detached from this place and time. But over and again, what makes this sermon controversial is that there is someone they're trying to determine that is saying these things and they don't know who is saying this. They're trying to get to the bottom of who is actually speaking to us and what is his authority and what is he about? And you're sort of new on the stage and can we trust you or can we not? Because you're saying some really interesting things. There's this phrase that keeps coming up over and over in the Gospel of Matthew. And we only read a few of them in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, But I say to you, we see that formula four times in this short reading. We see it in verse 21 and 27 and 31 and 33 and the reply in 22 and 28 and 32 and 34. This sort of recurring theme keeps coming up. And that's why I think to really understand what's happening in this text and the severity of what Jesus is bringing to bear in that location, which is where we think it happened, It's not just what is being said. It's who's saying it. I want you to imagine that crowd gathered around. For some hearing this, their mood was this. Whoa, who is this guy? For others hearing this, their mood was this. Hmm, who is this guy? And yet for others hearing this, their mood was this. Hmm, who is this guy? The rabbi craft was to teach the scripture. That was the craft. It's to study and to teach and to pass on the tradition. But a few select 
rabbis, and I mean a very few select rabbis, had what was called smicha. Smicha was the gift of authority. It was the kind of empowerment. It actually means the transition, the transmission of authority from two people into one person. And it actually began with this guy. The, transition goes, the, tran- the transmission goes all the way back to Moses. When you look in the Hebrew scriptures, he set up a kind of institution where they would lay hands on a few select rabbis who could interpret scripture in a new way, in a fresh way, who had the audacity and the authority to say, you have heard it said this, but what I'm telling you is this, and I'm trying to deepen and develop your understanding, and I'm going to say some new things. And so people are like, wait a second, this guy, Jesus, who gave him smikah? We don't know this rabbi, and he's talking as if he has the authority of Moses. So it's not just in what is being said. It is in who is saying it. Who is this guy? And when you come up in the Galilee, which was known for its biblical understanding, and I'm going to show you in a minute the formation of a Jewish male and female that would lead to a place that was not a dumb culture. It was not a backwater town. The Galilee was full of Jewish wisdom, people that knew the text. It was Pharisee world. And they had gathered a people there, and they're all asking the question, who is this guy? What is he doing? Because he's coming to us like the tradition of Moses, coming up on the mountain. By the way, this tradition of smikah, it starts with Moses. Did you know it goes all the way through to the fourth century AD? And what you would do is you would have two rabbis with smikah lay hands on another and say, the authority God's put in me, I put in you. Read the end of Matthew. Same thing's happening with Jesus with us, by the way. We won't get into that today. But this amazing transference of authority. And here's Jesus. And they're saying, wait, who did this to you? Who gave you authority? Can we trust you? Who are you? Jesus is speaking here as a rabbi with the authority of Moses, and nobody knows where he got his smikah. Now, let me back up a little bit. Um, Come further with me into the process of Jewish formation. Questions like, wait, how did like a rabbi then become a rabbi anyway? Like what would actually go into that process? I'm super glad you asked. Here's how it went. So the first stage of Jewish formation, it would be called Beit Sefer. Beit Sefer, think of it like um, elementary school. In Beit Sefer, here's a, a picture of Capernaum where Jesus sort of took root and residence and his adult ministry life. And this is actually fourth, fifth century. It's built on top of the synagogue Jesus would have actually taught in. So this wasn't the actual synagogue that Jesus is in. We will go there. But it was built a little bit later on top of the actual place where Jesus would have been. And I want you to imagine it. All the children around five, age five, would go and they would gather because synagogues are places of teaching, instruction. They're places of education. And so I want you to imagine the little boys and girls for the first time gathering in their elementary school. I remember my daughter's first day of kindergarten. It was sacred that morning, right? So there they are with the rabbi. And on the first day of school, every child gets a slate. And what's on the slate are at least three things. You would have the Hebrew alphabet, You would have a couple scriptures, and you would have a sentence. And the sentence read something like this. The Torah will be my calling. The Torah will be my calling. What's the Torah? Torah, in this instance, is the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the rabbi would take the slate, and he would immerse it in honey, and he would hand it to the child. And as the child received it, the rabbi would say, may the words of God be sweet to your taste, sweeter than honey. 
Parents, right now your kids are doing this practice in Trinity Kids Ministry, so they may be sticky when you pick them up. (laughs) That may not be true, but Chris is going to come lick this off just to give an example of what that looks like. I will just say this. For educators in the room, you already know this, but you need to hear it again. Your call is sacred. Where are my educators in the room? Just raise of hands. All of our calls are sacred. Your call, yes, your call, and I know it's exhausting, that comes from a deeper tradition that we believe that actually the rabbis are the first to really institute education in the world. And they're schooling people in the words of God. It's a beautiful thing, and we just want to say thank you for those of you who have given your life to that. So, by the end of Bates Affair, in that education process from five years old, they would be busy. And what would they be busy doing? A number of things. One of them is that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, by the time that they were seven or eight, the entire Torah was memorized. Can you think about the words of God being seared to the heart of every boy and girl in the Jewish world? So you get to the end of that process, and what would happen is girls would go on and start the learning and training, the apprenticeship of what it meant to run domestic life, and you would have boys that would begin apprenticing with their father or with a family member into the trade, but boys would also be invited to consider another part of their formational development. Around age 10, you would move into what's called Beit Midrash, and in Beit Midrash, you'd start studying all the different interpretations through the years of the Bible in the church we call this catechism, and you would also start memorizing the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the writings, the prophets. You would start, you know, no biggie, like people just memorizing this stuff, singing it out. In fact, they've said in synagogues that a common sound that you would hear walking from one village to another was the sound of kids chirping, going... That's what it would have sounded like to walk by these synagogues to hear these children regurgitating the scripture from song. Incredible formation happening at the time of Jesus. After this, boys would give their entire day learning the trade, but there was one more level of education. A very few select boys, sort of like the best of the best, the top gun of the Hebrew world. A very few select boys who had demonstrated exceptional learning and memory could go on to Beit Talmud. And here they would learn advanced biblical commentary. Beyond that, at age 18, they could then go out and ask a rabbi if they could follow him. We call that discipleship. And by age 30, for those that showed enough promise, they could actually become a rabbi. And if they were gifted enough, and I mean best of the best of the best, they could be given smikah. Rabbis coming around them and transferring their authority into a few select rabbis. Now, what age was Jesus when he launched his ministry? Around 30. Do you think that's an accident? No. The rabbis become stated as rabbis around the age of 30. So what does this have anything to do with Matthew 5? Well, I'll tell you. Let's return to where we began. What is so controversial here isn't just what is being said. It's who's saying it. Who is this guy? Who gave him smikah? Come back with me a few verses to Matthew 5. When we go back to the beginning of the chapter, something is happening, and I want to suggest it's easy to miss it. It's easy in our Western sort of mindset, not like a problem, but we can rush through verses, we can quickly get to the, to the Beatitudes, which are beautiful and amazing, but there's something that is happening in this that I just want to show you and to see if you have ever noticed this in the text. Matthew 5, 1, when Jesus saw the crowds. He went up 
on the mountain. Something is happening here in this text that's really fascinating. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And you have to realize if you have your Torah memorized and you've grown up in the system and you know your scriptures and you're awaiting for someone and you know the prophets, you have to be thinking that your neurons are firing and you're saying, well, wait, we know this. We know this scene. What he is doing is enacting the thing that we have been waiting for. We know the story. What is Jesus doing? Who does he think he is? This sounds a lot like this guy. Ascending a mountain, seeing the crowds, coming back with fresh words from God. Do you remember what Moses said? He said, let me prophesy before you. There's someone that's coming. Next passage. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your fellow Israelites. And I love this phrase. You must listen to him. For thousand, a thousand years, the Jews have been waiting for the, mo- the one Moses said would one day come. A new and better Moses who would come and give new interpretation. Here's the big idea, so don't miss the plot. The Sermon on the Mount is not just about what is being said. The Sermon on the Mount is about us making decision about who we actually think is saying it, who he is, what he is about. Is he the one the world has waited for? Listen to the rest of Matthew 5, 1. When you complete this verse into Matthew 5, verse 2, it's stunning, easy to miss. Watch what's happening. So he comes up the mountain, he sees the crowds, and watch this. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Remember Moses said, listen to him? What does he do? He opens his mouth and he taught them. You have to think that those Jewish boys and girls are watching this guy, saying, we know our text. We're waiting for the one. And he opens his mouth. And they're discerning whether or not this is the one who Moses said would come. Now, the text says, after he sat down. This is a really interesting moment in the text. Why does, it, why does it say that? Like, why waste the papyrus? Why waste the space to say, and Jesus sat down? Who cares? Who cares if he stood up, did a cartwheel, the dirty bird, sort of shake and bake? Who cares what he did? Why would it actually say that he sat down? Why does it matter? Well, at the time of rabbis in the first century, when they would teach, they would walk. The idea of it is actually getting the dust of the rabbi on you. So you follow your rabbi, literally. You believe not just here, but you believe in your feet, The idea of even the Shema from the Old Testament is to integrate the words of God into your entire life, into your work, into your family, into your neighborhood, into your home. And so rabbinic studies with a disciple, they would follow a rabbi. And when a rabbi would walk and teach, it was not considered authoritative. He was sharing opinions, ideas, what ifs, curiosities, wonderments. It wasn't authoritative. But when a rabbi would find his place and he would take a seat, and people would gather around him, it meant that the rabbi with smicha was ready ready to say something with authority, to say something to say, these are the words of God, and I'm about to interpret the word of God for you, and you can trust it. And so Jesus goes up on the mountain like Moses, and he sits down, and he opens his mouth, and out flows the words of God. And he begins to teach them with this formula. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And they're saying, I think this may be the guy we've been waiting for. He's teaching with authority. 
He's teaching with smicha. Today, when you go to Chorazin, here's a synagogue we'll go to. There's an actual Moses seat where when rabbis with smicha would come to town, they wouldn't just stand from the Bema and teach. They would actually sit down in the seat and interpret the law and to say, this is the way we are supposed to walk. Jesus ascends this mountain. The crowds are fascinated, and he opens his mouth. He begins to talk about things like this, murder. We read the text earlier. And he's saying things like, hey, listen, following God, it's, it's so much deeper than avoiding murder. AJ, I'm actually worried about the quiet bitterness in the depths of your heart. And I came to help you with that. And then he talks about adultery, and he says, yeah, 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 it's true. The law is true. Do not offer your body to anyone but your spouse. But I say to you that I'm also worried about the lust in your eyes when you're alone. And I came to empower you, AJ, to live a different kind of life. And then he'll talk about divorce, and he's like, yeah, yeah, it's true. Like, there's a provision for divorce in the case of abuse and unfaithfulness. But, but AJ, don't be looking for an easy way out when things get hard. Instead, humble yourself towards your spouse. And when you do that together, you present what I am doing in the world. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am here. And your marriage union is meant to echo a greater vertical story of what I'm doing in creation. And then he talks about oaths. And he says, by the way, don't exaggerate. Just let your words be simple and be faithful to do what you say you'll do. I'm actually worried about your tongue, AJ. I'm worried about the fact that I came to heal your heart and you're not letting me. I want you to live simple and to speak truthful words. It's as if Jesus is saying like this throughout the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not interested only in external behavior. I want your entire being. The kingdom life is not only about the rituals of the body. It's about the renovation of the heart. And we are all, all of us on that journey. Sermon on the Mount is not just about what's being said. It's about discovering who is saying it. Who do you think he is? Same question is for us that the ancients would have had to discern. If you really read the text and begin to understand what's underneath it, we discover that this is the new and better Moses. This is the one that they said would come. His name is Jesus. And he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He is the living Torah. And when he opens his mouth, God's words are on his lips. And Moses told us, listen to him. You think of all the messages we're constantly downloading, surrounded in the society that we live in, of all of those voices pierced through and listen to his voice above all. Right now, I think the, the reflection I think that could be helpful for us is to become curious about a couple things. Over the next couple days, I, I just would encourage you to, to walk with this. You know, maybe, maybe when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, yeah, I'm actually, God has me in a, asking different, a different thing in my life that I'm, like that topic wasn't addressed that I'm really wrestling with. And, and I, I think what I would just would say is this, like, what, what, is, what is God saying about your life right now? 
Like, is there an area of your life that's easy for you to dismiss, to deny, to ignore? And it's like the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, that's the exact place I want to form you. That's the exact place. It's not a problem for me. I just want you to know that that's happening in your life, and I'm going to meet you there. That's the place where I want to see your growth. What would that look like? Instead of whatever that is, that addiction, that behavior, that habit, what if that was shifted as the exact place where God wants to meet you and to meet your story and to see you grow in this year of Lent? You know, we sang that song as we began that the Lord is in his temple. The Lord is in his temple. It's easy to think about brick and mortar, but we know that the arc of the story of God in the scripture is that the the actual hope of God was that the temple would be you that the temple would be me. And God's saying, that's the place where I dwell most in the world. That's the place in creation you are prone to find me most densely is in the human heart. What's being said for you in your life right now? What is that arrow? You know that's what Torah means. It means shoot. Sin means to miss the mark. Arrow means to shoot right at your heart in a way where God says, I got you and I got words for you and I'm bringing you into renewal. And the second thing is, who's saying it? Is this just another teacher, another philosophy, another guru, another self-help God? When we recognize Jesus as the one who would come, as the Messiah the world is waiting for, what we realize is the one who is saying it is the one who is going to join you in your path of renewal. He is with you every step of the way. Because here's the deal. You cannot pull this off. But Christ in you, he's unstoppable. And he loves you. And he lives in the center of your being. And he's saying, give me your heart. Joyfully submit and watch what I will do in your life over time. So my friends, as we reflect on these questions, may the words of Jesus be sweet to your taste, sweeter than honey on your mouth. And may you find yourself being drawn into listening to him more than you ever have in your life. And so Holy Spirit, I pray over my friends and myself in this room that you would come and empower us to live the kinds of lives that you're calling us to. I pray that we would continue to see you as a gracious God who contends for us, a gracious God who enters in with us, who struggles with us, that is not against us and does not lock us into shame and condemnation, that you came to save the world, not condemn it, as you tell us. And so, Lord, as we reclaim the fact that you are a God who contends for our flourishing and it lives at the center of our being, may we participate with you and find ourselves growing in new ways that we might become the kingdom of heaven on earth. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this body of Christ. May you have your way with us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.